thank you, worship team, and thanks for uh, letting us have this family dedication this morning. I do want to uh, say a special word of happy Mother's Day, knowing that it isn't always so. We are thankful for the opportunity to recognize and recollect, you might say, mothers and the significant role that they have in our lives and how they are God-given blessings and a very biblical manifestation and a revelation of the character of God. But we also know that on Mother's Day, there are those who are experiencing grief, loss, sorrow, suffering, and pain. And so we don't want to gloss over that, pretend like there is not pain in this world, because there is. For some of you, I know, I've spoken with you, this is the first Mother's Day without your mom, and it's hard. And grief is an expression of love, but you are not alone. You are more loved now than you can possibly imagine. So, Please join me very briefly as we pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for the opportunity to pause and reflect on mothers. We are thankful for the blessing that they demonstrate in a very real sense, your compassion, your comfort for us. And Father, we pray that you, the God of all comfort, would minister to those who are suffering, who are sad, who are grieving, experiencing loss or frustration in their attempts to become mothers. We know, Father, that there is hurt, and yet it is no match for your grace and your mercy. And so would you shine forth by your spirit, according to your truth, among your people. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, my name's Eric, and I get to pastor the downtown campus here. And one of the things I get to do as a pastor is sometimes just uh, pause, step back, and go, hey, what is going on? In the world, perhaps you've noticed it's sort of a crazy time. Let me, let me help, because you can really sort of distill it all down. You can boil it all down. You can get it really, really simple and streamlined. It comes down to this. Most people in the world today, at least in Western civilization, not so much in rural Western China, but generally speaking in Western civilization, most individuals view themselves as a very spiritual person. Now, what does that mean? It depends on who you ask. But generally speaking, people as individuals say, oh, I'm a very spiritual person. And usually what they are inferring is the me who's really me, the me on the inside that, that, that I know, that nobody else knows, that I control, that I discern, that I determine, that I decide the real me. And so I'm a very spiritual person. Now, what's interesting is corporately, Culturally, contextually, in the group, we generally, as a society, as a culture, reject the existence of the spirit realm. That all we see is all we see. All we see is all there is. We live in a material world, and that's all. And so what we have is a contradiction and a conflict. We have people individually who say, I'm an individual spiritual person. In fact, in fact, in fact, I'm one of the spiritual elites because I'm not the smartest person, I'm just smarter than all of you. <laughs> and I have spent more time on Instagram and Facebook, and so I know truth, and I know what I know, but corporately, ah, you live, you die, you fertilize. That's pretty much it. And so there is this weird contradiction. And for that, we are invited to go to the truth of God's word, which reads us more than we read it. We are invited, in fact, we are summoned into truth to have wisdom. What is wisdom? 
Wisdom is seeing the world through God's eyes. Wisdom is having God's perspective. Wisdom is understanding reality, not from our vantage point, because it's always skewed and it's always flawed and it's always finite. Wisdom is understanding reality from God's standpoint. All of that produces our big idea, because from God's standpoint, everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. That's going to be our refrain for the morning. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of Colossians. Go in your New Testaments to Colossians chapter 1. This is our second sermon in our late spring, early summer sermon series in the book of Colossians. Let me remind you that the book of Colossians is very, very impactful and influential for us because it's a group of people sitting in Colossae, you might remember from last week, who have this church in the central part of south-central Turkey in the Lycus River Valley, the Tri-City area, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, at the base of the bowl of the Cadmus Mountains with all of these fruit trees all around Colossae. And the Apostle Paul had never been there. This church was founded by what we'll call an apostolic delegation. Paul sent a guy named Epaphras from Ephesus to go back to Colossae, where Epaphras was from, and he planted the church. That's our story. None of us have ever met a real-life apostle because they're all dead. And there were no miracles happening in Colossae, simply the teaching of God's word, simply the proclamation of the apostolic confession. That's what Epaphras was doing. That's what we're doing. Now, the book of Colossians was written by Paul from his first Roman imprisonment at the very end of the book of Acts, where though Paul is in chains, the gospel is unchained. While in prison, Paul writes the book of Ephesians, he writes Philippians, he writes Colossians, and Philemon, because Philemon and his slave Onesimus were from Colossae. Now, Last week, we made it all the way through verse 8. Verses 3 through 8 are one very long run-on sentence. Not to be outdone. Still in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20 are actually one very long run-on sentence. Today, we're only going to make it halfway through this very long run-on sentence. Paul hates periods. He just loves prepositional phrases, and he keeps stacking them together. By the way, side note, have you ever noticed how it's weird that kids will say, like, cross your heart, hope to die? Okay, anyway, moving on. Colossians 1, we're going to start reading in chapter 1, verse 9. That's just a weird expression. I don't know where they get that. Chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes this. And so, in view of everything he's just written to them, sitting in prison, thinking of them, being mindful of them, feeling deep emotion for them, in verses 3 through 8, he has written about their justification, that they were found guilty in the high court of God himself, but declared righteous. That's justification. Found guilty, declared righteous. And so, because you have been found guilty, yet declared righteous, you are in Christ. When God views you, he has chosen to change his mind about you. Now he only sees his own son, Jesus, with a slight waft of you on the air. But it's Jesus. And so, in view of your justification, Paul's now going to pivot to sanctification, now, that's a dangerous word in a lot of denominations because it means a whole lot of different things to different people. I don't care. I just want to know what it meant to Paul. I just want to know what it meant to Paul and what Paul wanted for those people there and then, and by extension, us here and now, to understand and internalize and therefore live. Paul's sitting in Rome. 
And he writes this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, does that mean Paul couldn't even eat his breakfast because he was just always praying? No, it doesn't mean he was never not praying, just that every time he went through his regiment, his, his program of, of prayer, he was always delighted to think about those people in Colossae that he never knew, but for all eternity, he would never not know because of their union in Christ. And so he says, we, you got Timothy that's with Paul there in Rome in prison. You got Epaphras, the pastor from Colossae. He's there and they're just praying fervently. Now I have to, I have to take a little field trip here because this model for prayer is so convicting because I will tell you pastorally, it is not my typical model of prayer, although it should be. And I know that. Often as not, there are so many things that are bubbling up, so many uh, minor emergencies or crucial issues where the tyranny of the urgent sort of forces our hand in prayer either because of our affections or our attentions. And so we've, we find ourselves just sort of praying through the hospital list. Heal them, fix them, heal them, fix them, stop that bad thing from happening. Which is okay, but if that's all we ever do, then we are incomplete and in fact somewhat stunted in our growth. This model that Paul gives for prayer is marvelous and it is majestic. It's not just a model for prayer. It is a, a sphere of sanctification. It is a model of discipleship. As I thought about this and prayed about this this week, I thought, how many times do I pray for the leaders or just the people of this church that this is how they would proceed? And the transparent truth is not nearly as often as I should. Paul says, every time I pray for you, this is what I am praying. And then he's going to be very, very specific. Still here in verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. Now, we say this all the time at Bethel. I want to say it again and again and again. In all of these New Testament epistles, the indicative always precedes the imperatives. Let me say it another way. The imperatives always follow the indicative. Some of you are like, uh-huh, uh-huh, just tell me what to do. No! I'm not going to because Paul does it. In fact, instead, I'm first going to do what Paul does and simply tell you all that God is, all that God has done, and therefore who you are to be. The indicative always precedes the imperatives. In fact, in this passage this morning, there's not a single imperative verb. You don't get told to do anything. But what you are told is absolutely, literally life-changing. What Paul is calling them to, because of what they're dealing with in Colossae, is the exact same thing we're dealing with in East Texas in the 21st century. There were all these appeals that, hey, that Jesus that you claim, that's nice and all, but you got to do some extra stuff. And Paul says, no, no, you don't need any additional spiritual experience. Let me be very quick and clear on that. You do not need any additional spiritual experience. What you are to be is one who grows in the experience God's already done. You don't have to achieve now, what's going on here? We've already said this. The theme of Colossians, Paul's little four-chapter letter, is the supremacy of Christ. It's all about the kingship of Jesus. Chris already mentioned, our death-proof king. Now, this passage really begins to take dead aim at some of the conflicts. And so sort of the subtitle theme for the book of Colossians is confronting and correcting conflicts with the kingship of Christ. As it turns out, no matter where you are in the world, 
You're going to have all sorts of opposition, all sorts of dilutions, all sorts of heresies and errors. And they're usually local, and they're usually sort of uh, particular to a place and a context, but it doesn't matter what the heresy or the error, the universal truth that addresses all of it is the kingship of Christ. We say this all the time in our staff meetings, and we'll be in a staff meeting going through this particular issue or the other, and inevitably, one of us will say, I don't know, but here's the deal. We serve a death-proof king, and this is what he would say about this. And we go, matter's closed. Confronting and correcting conflict with the kingship of Christ. Well, what was happening in Colossae was the same thing that's even happening today. There's nothing new under the sun. There was this teaching that was beginning to come in to Colossae, and Epaphras takes a trip from Colossae to Rome to tell them, hey, the Gnostics have come to Colossae. Who are the Gnostics? Well, it is this entire philosophy. All philosophy and religion, by the way, all of it, all of it, is simply trying to answer the question, how can a person have peace with God and everlasting life? Boil it all down. That's all philosophy, philosophia, the love of wisdom and religion, the organizing narrative. How can a person have peace with God and have everlasting life? Now, these Gnostic teachers, they were coming in saying, hey, that's really nice and all, but you have to understand the God that you proclaim, he's not the ultimate original God. No, 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 no. That God, well, we'll get to him in a minute. They said there was God from way, way, way back in eternity past, and he kept sort of emitting these little demiurges, these sort of little... These other little slightly less powerful gods. And each one of them became slightly less good. Slightly less good. Slightly less good until finally one of them was just ornery enough that he actually created the material physical world. And these Gnostics said, listen, that's cute, Jesus and all, but what you have to understand is you have to accomplish and achieve so that you can be a spiritually elite person like us and you have to ascend to connect all the way back to the original God. And we have the secrets. Every faith construct is trying to do the same thing. A bunch of stuff that you have to do to achieve, obtain, and accomplish. Paul says, no, it's all been done. And so Paul's going to take their favorite words and he's going to judo toss them right back onto the Gnostics so that these people and so that Epaphras will be equipped to deal with it. What's the deal with Gnosticism? How is it a thing in our day and age? Gnosticism says, I get to decide who the real me is. My feelings are what determine my reality. That's simply what Gnosticism says. Can you imagine a culture and a context in which that's happening? (laughs) My feelings are my decision makers. I feel this way, therefore it must be true. Paul says, no, no. Feelings are wonderful servants. They are terrible masters. What is the authority in our life is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And so let's look at this for what Paul's gonna tell these people in Colossae. I have not ceased to pray for you, asking God that you may be filled. All of these verbs are in the passive voice, that this would be done to you, that you would simply be the willing recipient of, that you would be filled. This word filled is in Greek, the pleroma. The Gnostics loved to talk about the pleroma. If you'll just come to us and get the secrets, then you too can have the pleroma, the filling. It's got the idea of a ship that is fully supplied, finally ready to set sail. If you'll come to us and do our little tricks and answer these special questions and do these little practices, then you can be filled and you can finally set sail. Paul goes, no, no. It's actually got nothing to do with you. God does it. That is where the filling comes from. That you may be filled, then he says, with knowledge of his will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. These are the favorite terms of the Gnostics. You have to have this special gnosis, this special insight that only we can give you. But Paul ups the ante. He doesn't just say gnosis, knowledge. He ups it and he says that you would have all epignosis. It's, uh, it's like uber knowledge. We say in our skin we have epidermis because it's the layer that is above everything else. We say things are epic because it's above everything else. It's come from Greek word. And so Paul says, I'm praying that you would have epignosis, like the ultimate, and that you would have wisdom. Wisdom, you might say, is thinking God's thoughts after him so that you instinctively know how to deal with life that occurs in your sphere of existence that is not explicitly covered in the pages of Scripture. But what happens when I do this? What happens when she says this to me? What happens when that occurs in my job? That's not talked about in Scripture. No, but you have wisdom. You have all spiritual wisdom. You're thinking God's thoughts after him. You're seeing the world through God's eyes. You have God's vantage point for reality and that you would have all understanding. Understanding in this term is synthesis. It's where you take all these different strands, all these different uh, braids of information and you put them all together to really understand it from a 365 degree sphere. There's not 365 degrees, but there should be because it's like epic, dude. So you have all this understanding and you have wisdom. This is Paul's prayer, that you would be filled. They're not doing anything yet. Paul's praying that this is how they would go and grow. You'd be filled with knowledge of his will. What is God's will for your life? Pop quiz. It's to be God's will. Not to turn left here or to take that job there or to marry that person or to not marry that person. God's will for your life is to be God's will. It's as though God has sent his spirit to indwell the saint at Colossae and in East Texas to be the walking around presence of Christ in the world. It's as though Jesus was living his life through you because that is precisely what he aims to do. And that is God's will. And then you get all the nobility, all the dignity to decide what color shirt you wear and where to park your car. He doesn't care because you have all wisdom and knowledge of his will, epic knowledge of his will, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that's the prayer, verse 10. Here's the purpose. Why does Paul pray this for them? Because he wants something for them and in them so that as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How's business? Now, when he says walk, he doesn't just mean that you have a, a funny walk. No, no. This is your moving around every day, 24-7 existence in thought, word, and deed. And again, Paul is repurposing Greek terms. Socrates, you might remember from the 4th century BC, popularized the Socratic method. And his student, Plato, popularized the academy. You would sit in the lecture hall and you would hear all this wonderful wisdom. But then Plato's student, Aristotle, said, nope, we're leaving the lecture hall and we're going to walk around you're going to follow in my footsteps. And they called that the parapateo school of philosophy, the walk, the walking around. You just followed Aristotle. You saw what he said. You, said. you saw what he did. You saw where he went. And you followed in his footsteps. And that became known as the walk. And Paul says, oh, no, no, I'm praying that God would do all of this in you so that your walk would be worthy. Anyone thought about the last seven days of your life? Has every thought, word, and deed been worthy of Jesus? Probably not. So what's Paul doing here? Well, the word worthy is a hard translation. Nobody really knows how else to translate it because it's strange. It's the term axios. It's where we get our word for axis, 
the, the thing around which our world spins. That's the axis. Or you take an axe, or I'm told people do this. I clearly don't know how to do that. You take an axe, and you split something right down the middle because you axios it. You split it evenly. Ah, so there's even, there's balance that you would walk an even life. Oh, that's really interesting because the Gnostics promised that they could get you that, that you would be spiritually elite. Paul says, no, no, I'm praying that God would continue to do that in you so that you would walk in a manner, axios, evenly divided of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. How does your life fully please him? Well, God's will is that the kingdom would continue to break forth. Remember, we say this all the time at Bethel. If you are a saint, if you are a Christian, you are from the future. The king has come and his kingdom is here. He has stretched the borders and the boundaries of the coming kingdom back into the present age because of what he did in the past. And if you are a saint in Christ and you are from the future, referencing, resembling, reflecting his righteous rule in the realm. And so when you do that, when you act as an agent, an ambassador, an emissary of his kingdom, he is pleased. But what are you supposed to do? I don't know. How would Jesus live his life if he was living his life through you? And then you, in wisdom, you get to decide how the specifics of your day all go. Bearing fruit in every good work. Now, this is this wonderful agricultural metaphor, this symbol that Paul uses because Colossae is surrounded by fruit trees that you would walk worthy of the Lord, being fully pleasing, that you would bear fruit in every good work. But I got to pause for just a second. When we hear every good work in church context, we usually think of random acts of kindness. We think of waiting for the, the most unhealthy person you can find, Mike Hall, and helping him across the street after service. That's not what good works are. It's not just random deeds that are nice, slightly moral, somewhat inconveniencing to you. No, no, no. When Paul says, good works. In all of his epistles, he has something very specific in particular in mind. This is redemptive recreation language. This is Garden of Eden language. Good work is not just an act of kindness. It is gardening. This is the language that Paul's always using. It is gardening. It is taking the resources that are made available by God and rearranging them for the good of the community. Let me say that again. Good work is not just doing something nice. It is taking the resources that God has made available to you and rearranging them for the good of the community. That's what gardening is. That's good work in scripture from the table of contents to the maps. Good work is gardening. It is taking something, rearranging it for the blessing, the building, the bolstering of the community. My prayer for you is that you would be filled with knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that you would walk a balanced life so that you would bear fruit. But it's the fruit of the Spirit. It is never called the fruit of the saints. It is done in and through you, not by you, ever. And so if all you're ever doing is focusing on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, suffering, self-control, you're missing it. You're missing it. It is not the responsibility of the tree to bear fruit. The tree just does that. The responsibility of the tree is to stand and let its created essence actually express what it was created and redemptively recreated to do. This is Paul's prayer. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? He doesn't even know these people, but he's praying for them. Man, that you people in Colossae, in the dark, depraved, dying world of darkness, that you would walk worthy, that you would bear fruit, you know, like the fruit trees all outside of Colossae, that that would be you in the garden of our God, 
that you would produce fruit. Where, 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 where. Revelation 21 at the very end, the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing and whose fruit is for the feeding of the nations. It's you and it's me. This is Paul's prayer for his people. Did I mention I don't usually pray like this, but I should. And I started to this week and it's been exhilarating. It's been absolutely thrilling to think of your faces and to pray this for you. He continues, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, in the epic knowledge. Not about God, not being able to win Bible Jeopardy. There's no value for that in eternity. Not knowing about him, that God is spelled G-O-D. Good for you, awesome. No, 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 that you would know him, that you would actually know him, the person, so that you know what he loves. You know what he likes. You know what he wants. You know what grieves him. You know what hurts him. There are certain things that I know that if I say or do, it will grieve my wife. And I do them with great frequency because I'm a jerk, but I'm learning. I'm growing in the knowledge of my spouse that I don't want to do those things because I love her, not just about her, of her as a person, as an entity with a volitional will that I want to, I want to cultivate. I want to curate. That's what Paul's praying for them. Verse 11, may you be strengthened. And then he's going to give us these three different words. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, this is a little bit of a funny play on words because anytime you see the might of God, the krator of God, usually that is in a destructive, like ugh, the all-powerful, the almighty. He brings his force and his energy. But Paul says, I want you quite literally translated, to be the strengthened ones in the strength of God's might. Rather than being eradicated or evaporated, you are to be energized and encouraged and emboldened. This is Paul's prayer for the people, that they would be spiritually swole. Because everything is spiritual. There is not this duplicitous thing where, yeah, that part of my life is just my real everyday walking around life, but then there's the spiritual parts where I get to pretend to be holy. Ah, Paul says, everything thought, word, and deed, everything is spiritual, that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, not out of his glorious might, according to, commensurate with. I say this all the time. If Warren Buffett gives me $5, that is out of his wealth. If Warren Buffett gives me $5 million, that is according to his wealth. Paul says that you would be strengthened according to God's glorious might, he holds nothing back. He's not disinterested. He's not disappointed. He's wanting to give you the fullness of himself. That you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For, and then here's some really, really hard things to hear, but super important. For all endurance. Quite literally, the ability to stand up under the weight. Because you may not know this. Life's hard. And if you're in a season of, of struggle right now, I'm sorry. And for those of you who aren't, surprise, it's coming. It's just how life goes. But that you would be able to have endurance to stand up under the burden for when opposition, resistance, and struggle comes. And have patience, macrothumia, long-suffering, that you could deal with a whole lot of bad you could deal with a whole lot of pain and not squawk and complain bitterly aloud, which really sort of tarnishes our witness. And then Paul does something beautiful. 
Three things that are the byproduct, the fruit of your strengthening, that you would have endurance, that you would have patience, and in the verse 11 here, that you would have joy. Now, Paul's doing something very specific. He's refuting one of the other schools of philosophy, the Stoics, who just said, life stinks, grit your teeth, and bear it, and then die. Some of you perhaps come from the Stoic school, where you just think, life's hard, and I'm just going to die. Oh, no, Paul says, you have been strengthened. Oh, again, the recipient, it's a passive verb. You've been strengthened so that you have endurance, so that you have patience, so that you have joy. Joy is the outcome of fulfillment. You have been filled. You have been strengthened. It's an amazing thing. This is his prayer. Giving thanks. Ah, it's all about gratitude. Paul prays that these people would be a people of thankfulness and gratitude. Now, does the joy go with the endurance or does the joy go with the gratitude? Yes! It's an intentional hinge there. He's connecting them both. That you would have endurance and patience and joy and enjoy be a person of thanksgiving and gratitude. Here's one thing I can tell you. Jewish rabbis and Protestant preachers agree on this universally. The key for a life of joy is gratitude. The fact that any good thing happens to you or me ever is a grace. Ever. The thing that we're actually entitled to in this life, well, that's eternal separation from God and from one another. Anything above that is a grace and a goodness and a bonus and a blessing. And so when we are seeing the world through God's eyes of all spiritual wisdom and understanding and epic knowledge, uber knowledge, we become people of thanksgiving, which produces in us joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Again, all of these verbs are past tense verbs. God did something in the past to you that you're from the future. So let me make sure I'm super clear. Paul's prayer is that they would be growing and maturing in spiritual wisdom and knowledge and insight, that they would be strengthened, that they would have patience and endurance. But let me be very precise. You being strong, you being patient, and you having endurance, and you having wisdom does not qualify you for anything. God does the qualifying. Every other faith construct has all these heavy hitters. Hinduism has uh, gurus that apparently can meditate themselves to levitate. Cool. Uh, Buddhists have these people who are, who are more uh, able to meditate themselves into another level of consciousness, uh, contemplating nothingness. Cool. There's a sect of Islam where people spin around, spin around, and they achieve a certain level of, of higher experience. Cool. Paul says you don't need another experience. You are to grow in the experience that God's already given you. There are even people in Christendom, in Christianity, who say you have to achieve this other level of experience and accomplishment. Paul says, no, it's all done. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, this is amazing. He's not just saying brilliance in illumination. The inheritance that he's talking about here of the saints in light. This is a refutation of the Gnostics. who said you can accomplish and achieve and you can hook all the way back to the original God. Paul says, no, it's already been done for you. It's already been done. And what is our inheritance? The inheritance is that which is left for the firstborn male, Jesus. What Jesus deserves, we are promised. It's an incredible scandal of grace. He has delivered us, verse 13, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is marvelous, 
Old Testament Exodus language. Just like he brought Israel out of Egypt through death at the Dead Sea and brought them into a promised context, this is what God has done in Christ with us. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. All these verbs are being done to us. He delivered, he transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are from the future, Paul says. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know whose you are? In whom we have redemption. I love this word. It's not just salvation, although that's cool. That's amazing. It is this idea of unleashing you have been paid for. You are now unleashed. Apollotrusis. You have been unshackled. You've been, the rocket engine in your soul has been fired. Now you are unleashed and freed to go and be the person God created and redemptively recreated you to be. You have been redeemed for the forgiveness of sins. There was stuff held against us. The hindrance and the hurdle for our being who we were created to be was sin, but it has been paid. See, everything is spiritual. Every aspect of our lives, we don't get to compartmentalize it. So very quickly, let me give us four takeaways for what this means to us in the here and now that everything is spiritual. I want to be very, very precise. I'm talking about Christian spirituality. The, the, the world that these Colossian saints lived was very similar to our own. They, the, they were being bombarded with all these worldly teachings of how they could strive to become the spiritually elite. And we live in the same exact kind of context. Everyone wants to be spiritually elite, but Paul reminds them of the truth of who they already are because of whose they are. So first point goes like this. Spirituality is balance. Balance or Christian spirituality is balance. It comes from that word axios. We translated it as worthy. It's even. The Gnostics had been bombarding them relentlessly to believe that there's a real material world and then there's a spiritual domain of some sort. And those two things are separate. And so you can be and you can behave however you want in the real world. It's who you are on the inside that really matters. Now, God's word will have none of it. Everything in thought, word, and deed is spiritual. Everything matters because we are from the future. We are representatives of the kingdom on earth. And so we have to be mindful of our spiritual reality. There must be no separation between the top floor of our lives where we think good, decent, moral thoughts, and then the bottom floor of our real life, we engage with others and have conversations and see things that we ought not to do. No, no, no. Everything is spiritual. One compartment, one person. Secondly, Christian spirituality is righteousness. Righteousness is way more than merely moral or well-behaved. It is the holiness, the godness of God rolling forward to set the world to rights. We see that right here in this text, that God has done a thing in and through and with us so that we would be walking around doing his good work. But again, it's not just good, decent deeds. It is bringing the kingdom to full manifestation in our small spheres of influence. This is what Ephesians 2.10 says. We have been saved to do good works, not merely good deeds, but to do God's good work of redemptive recreation, of Eden gardening in our little sphere of influence. Does that mean you have to change the world, make a global impact? No, in fact, you probably won't. Sorry, sorry, millennials, you're probably not gonna change the world. But that's okay, because the first millennial, Jesus, has already done it. You and I just get invited to set the world to rights 
in small little pockets of personal interactions, perhaps setting the world to rights in the way that we have conversations with our spouses, that we have tones when we speak to our children, that we actually get down and we get below their eye level and we nurture them, not lecture them. We give them the gospel, not doctrine. Perhaps that's how we are spiritually mature is that we are rolling forward God's program of righteousness. Thirdly, spirituality is strength. It is strength. Being strengthened already by the might of our God. This means that we've already been given all that we need for life and godliness. We've been given the heart and the mind of Jesus so that we react like him when, not if, we encounter opposition and struggle. We have patience we have endurance. Paul will say to the Philippians, same time he's writing from prison in Rome, he says, let this be known about you. Let this be your distinguishing mark, your radical even keelness. So it doesn't matter what comes against you, good times or bad times, you are the same person unflappable throughout because of the kind of person that God is making you to be, this radically even keel. Fourthly, spirituality is joy said it already, I'll say it again. Joy is the outcome of fulfillment. And God has given us this filling already. One of the things that the Jewish rabbis have already said, and we agree with, is this notion of joyful gratitude. We uh, always are mindful of how much God has done for us in Christ. And so we have this attitude of thankfulness. It's the miracle cure for joy, is to have gratitude and thanksgiving. But it requires careful and contemplative cultivation. We have been invited to see and to understand all that God has done for us. And our lives are spiritual. Everything is spiritual. If you'd have asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell me about your spiritual life, he would have stared at you blankly. What do you mean? Because everything is spiritual. It's like asking a fish, how's the water? The fish would say, what's water? It is just the thing in which I exist, period. Everything is spiritual. But here's the deal. <laughs> it's Sunday, and in fact, it's Mother's Day, but Monday's coming. Inevitably, Monday's coming. And so our awe will leak. Our joy will flatten. Our eyes and our ears will be distracted. So how do we live in view of our justification and our sanctification as Paul is praying? I want to remind you, there are no imperatives in this entire passage, Colossians 1, 9 to 14, but I will now give you one. And we just sang about it. Look at Jesus. That's your imperative. Look at Jesus, not try harder to be better. Oh, please, you're toast by 3 p.m. Look at Jesus. Listen, in this life, we're always gonna struggle with sin. That's what saints do. If you're not struggling with sin, you're probably not a saint. You're just going with the flow. No, no, in this life, we do struggle with sin, but God has given us a description of what a spiritual life looks like. Back to the Old Testament. In the book of Micah, chapter 6, Micah says this on behalf of God. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's such a wonderful verse, Micah 6, 8. But it's also, if we're being totally honest, it's a crushing burden because none of us can do that consistently at least certainly not in our own strength, and that's okay. Because Micah 6, 8 was actually directed to the nation of Israel, and they couldn't do it either. But there was one who did do Micah 6, 8 
perfectly and precisely every moment of his life in thought, word, and deed. Jesus, our true Israel, he is the person that fulfills that. And what's crazy is, amazingly, is the gospel is that God sees us in Christ because he chooses to. And so as far as God is concerned, we live Micah 6, 8 all the time, even when we don't. And when we don't, we agree with him. And he expunges it from our record. We live Micah 6, 8 every day because Jesus did. And that's how God sees us. Now, if that's true, and it is, then that ought to change everything about how we live Monday through Sunday. We instead recognize that that is our future reality in the present. So here's a practical little technique to help us be mindful. <laughs> Cross your heart. Hope to die. The early church used to make this symbol to one another, the sign of the cross, to remind them of what God had done in Christ to redeem them to themselves and one another. Unfortunately, the church began to be somewhat corrupt, and they began to use this as a get-out-of-hell-free symbol, never what it was intended. But I want you to think about living a balanced life. Cross your heart. When you begin to stray and you begin to wander and your mind goes to flickering pickles on a computer screen that leads your emotions and your passions in directions that should not go, cross your heart that he is the axis straight through your life around which you and your life revolve. What God has done in Christ, cross your heart, hope to die. No, I don't mean you want to die. I mean you have hope, a confident expectation of something good in the future. I have patience and endurance because I've been strengthened, because he has given me the filling that gives me spiritual wisdom and knowledge and all depth of understanding, cross your heart, and hope to die. I'm not saying this is a rabbit's foot. Oh, it's not that. It's a reminder to all of us to be mindful, to think rightly, to regularly and rightly recognize what our God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage, and I do pray, God, that you will continue to do your good work, that we would do your good work, that millions and millions of people all over the world and hundreds of people in this community will be your gardeners, bearing fruit. We know that is your purpose and your plan. So, Father, I want to pray this passage over these, your people. So, Lord, would you fill us with the knowledge of your will, and by the power of the Spirit, give us wisdom and epic knowledge. Would you empower us to walk in a manner even, worthy, and balanced of you, and to be pleasing to you in all things? Help us to bear fruit in every good work and may each good work increase our knowledge of you. Would you strengthen us with the power of your glorious might and may your power give us endurance and patience to joyfully follow you. Father, thank you for qualifying us to inherit your kingdom, for delivering us from darkness and for transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved son, Jesus. It is through him alone that we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sin. And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.